The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. I am here with my good friend, Lisa Cummings. We met earlier this year at Podcast Movement, and we spoke for well over an hour in the in the hallways instead of going and meeting other people and learning more things about podcasting. So I was like, well, might as well have this conversation and memorialize it. So here we are. Thanks for being here. I love that. Memorialize it. Yeah. Get some value for other people as well. And it was so great to be able to meet you through our friend Scott Barlow. It's always great. It's easy to kick off an hour long with someone you just met when you've been connected by somebody who knows you already have something in common. Exactly. Yeah. Scott, for those of you that don't know Scott Barlow, he's my business coach and he has a podcast too called Happen to Your Career. So check that out when you get a chance. And Lisa has a podcast too. So you need to check that out. So I guess I'll give you the floor so you could tell us more about what you do and a little bit about your podcast too. Oh yeah, sure. So my show is called Lead Through Strengths and that's actually also the name of my company. So it's a training company And we speak and do workshop with corporate teams on this premise that using your strengths at work makes you a stronger performer at work. So we help these teams find each person's specific natural talents and then work on those and exploit those rather than trying to fix weaknesses, which is kind of the lifelong endeavor that I find most teams are doing. And that's a very draining effort. So yeah, that's what I do. And I think being on your show related to negotiation is that, you know, I don't I don't consider myself an expert on negotiation, yet I'm definitely a student of it, definitely a student of people and things like, I guess you could call it ethical persuasion, but I really think of it more like influence and the ability to find alignment between people's goals so that everybody is getting something they're happy with getting at the end of a conversation or a transaction or a whatever. And that's what we were talking about so long in the hallway that I think prompted you to uh, memorialize it here. Exactly. And I thought that was so interesting, the idea of ethical persuasion or ethical influence and blending it with what you do, because your focus is really helping people within the workplace. So how have you seen your ability to negotiate or persuade manifest itself in the workplace? Or how have you seen other people use it successfully? Well, you know, it's interesting in the business that I do specifically where I help people find their unique strengths and use them at work. I see that manifest because they can use the stuff they're already good at instead of trying to use a formula or something like that. It is using their superpowers to work. So, for example, let's say you're really analytical. Well, for you, then you might want to nerd out on the data and finding great stats and proof points that will really matter to someone and bringing insight to a client that they wouldn't have had without you. Then you take somebody different who's really high on communication and all that jazzes them is 
being able to find the perfect story to make something resonate, to help their clients understand something in a way they couldn't have without that story. So I see it manifesting in the workplace through my work like that, because when you use your own talents, you show up differently and the conversation goes very differently. And so that's it kind of as the deliverable through what what I do at work. And then while I'm negotiating my own deals, boy, I use all sorts of stuff. Focusing on fit is one that I think is really important. Exchanging value rather than your margin when someone's asking for a price reduction is another one. Uh, conceding with a plan in mind before you are asked for a concession. Those are probably the three biggies. Happy to dig into any of those. Those are the ones that are biggest when I'm actually working on my own deals. That's really interesting. And I think I don't know if you feel comfortable doing this, but maybe we could analyze your strengths and talk about how you utilize your strengths when you are persuading. Oh, good angle. That's fun. Okay, so one of my top five talents is called individualization. And I'm using these terms, by the way, from StrengthsFinder. That's my favorite tool. I use that on the front end of most of my training programs. And so when I use these words, they're StrengthsFinder words. And individualization is one where I love to find that thing about the other person that helps us relate to each other. And a lot of times it's finding similarity areas, but more often it's actually finding areas where we're different. So I can just get really curious and understand, ooh, what is it about that that makes you tick? And so when it comes to clients, I'm finding what's the unique thing about their culture or what's the thing about their problem that's really wrecking their gut and how can I really help them? So it makes me want to customize all the time. It makes me want to customize my messaging to them. It makes me want to customize my emails. It makes me want to find, it's like, here's what happens in my brain. I see these two circles and in the circle, one is me and the other circle is them. And if you push them together and overlap them, there's this area that's relevant to both of you. It's something that you both care about. And so that's what I'm always out there looking for. And my talent of individualization helps me spot that and then start the conversation from there because it's something we're both going to care about. So that's one example. I have you know plenty more that I could go into, but that's one talent and one way that I use it in business. I think that's a great example. And finding common ground and starting there is always a good place to start when you're trying to persuade somebody too. Yeah. And it really lines up with that thing I was talking about with focus on fit. I first heard that phrase from my friend Ian Altman. He owns growmyrevenue.com. And it's just this idea of literally focusing on the fit. Does your service offering fit their needs? And it helps you stay in service of the customer and do that with integrity. Because if you're always focused on whether you're a good fit, you're going to find a win for all the parties or you're going to be able to tell them honestly, yeah, I'm not your best solution for this. And here's a person I can recommend. And I think it's so cool because once I really started doing that, it's a bonus that they react really well to it. They're not defensive about the conversation. They don't have their guard up wondering what solution you're going to try to cram down their throat when they see you're not desperate and you're not worried about that part of it. You really do want to find the best for them. And I feel great even when I'm not a good fit for everybody. And when I'm not, I have a friend I can send them to. And I stay really well networked with people who do other things or even other strengths businesses. They just deliver differently. I can send them to a person who matches them really well. And that makes the dynamic so much more pleasant. I mean, why go through life feeling on edge with each other? Instead, you know, this really just helps Everybody feel open to finding the right answer, whether or not that involves me. I really like that point because focusing on fit, it takes, like you said, you're less defensive and they're less defensive. 
and you're not desperate. And it also relieves pressure because really you're just trying to figure out whether or not this works. And so um, one of the things I always say is I look at negotiation as the art of deal discovery, not necessarily deal making. Because if you look at it like deal making, the pressure's on you to try and make it happen. You feel like you could force it through. But if it's deal discovery, there's less pressure because you have an open and honest conversation with the other side and you see whether or not there's a way you can be creative and work together to make it happen. And if not, I like that. no problem. Yeah, that's a great phrase. That is very cool. Okay. And you said also earlier, you said one of the three things that you look at is focusing on value and not margins. Can you go a little deeper into that? Yeah. So it happens all the time that people say, oh, that's actually not in my budget. Or uh, we were thinking it was going to be more like this. Or they might just ask for a discount because in some I, I am doing business often in corporate world. And sometimes it's just part of the corporate culture that no matter what price you throw out there, they're going to ask for a discount because they want to feel like they got a deal. So I think the idea of exchanging value rather than your margin is to say, all right, before I've gone into this conversation, I have some ideas in my mind of ways that I can reduce the scope of my offering if they want me to reduce the price of the offering or how I could add value that I didn't talk about before to justify the higher price for them. So some of these things are really simple as well. Like I do these champion meetings or I'll do executive briefings. So they might be hour long meetings that happen after a workshop with champions. It's how their internal people are going to be able to take this stuff and do something with it long term so that it's not just an event and then they forget all about it. So it's enabling the champions for an hour to really make a plan and execute this over time at their company or an executive briefing might be getting their senior leaders on board. So they get the premise of this thing so that they're supporting it and they make sure that they're in alignment with it and they're mentioning it. Well, for me, I've already traveled to another city. That ends up often it takes me three days, even if it's just for a one hour speech. I live in Austin, Texas. I can't get a lot of places direct. So I'm going to spend a day traveling on the front end, a day traveling on the back end, and then the event day. So if I had an hour of time for one of these champion meetings or executive briefing, that's easy enough for me. No big deal. So it's extra great value for them. Normally, they would be paying me thousands of dollars to come back and do that separately. So they're getting great value add because they're extending this implementation throughout their company and they're getting it in one swath instead of paying multiple times. And I'm getting something better out of it because instead of giving away price or margin, I'm offering them something of value to make this more significant in their organization. So those are the things. It's exchanging value and always thinking about when they ask for something, this kind of gets into the concession one as well, where if they ask for something, then I'm asking for something in return and we're actually back and forth. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. In a different perspective. And so I have all kinds of creative things that I use so that it's not just, okay, I'll discount price. And that's the end of the conversation. Right. I, I really love that example because the one thing that you said that might seem minuscule, but I want to focus in on that is the back and forth. 
because when you're negotiating, it should be like a dance. You take one step one way and then another step backwards. But often people get into the position where they're negotiating against themselves and the other side takes two steps forward and you don't take any steps in your direction too. So I think that's a really great point that you said that you're not giving away anything without getting something in return. And you can be creative by not focusing 100% on the margins, the dollar amount, but focusing on the value and trading things. If they want a discount, then you can decrease the value and save some time on your end. And then if you want to get a higher price, you can increase value and then trade that for some money. I think that's a brilliant example. Yeah. And that dance that you brought up is like that concession part that I learned this from a company I actually used to work for called Corporate Visions, and they call it Concede According to Plan. And the idea is very much like your dance, where ordinarily, or what I used to get stuck in, was people throughout the process in between your first conversation and a deal getting made or them deciding that another solution would work better for them, a lot of things happen that I wasn't even thinking of as a concession. So they may ask you, to, hey, can you present to our executive team? And that's after you already thought the deal was done with this specific person. And then you realize, oh, they actually weren't the decision maker. They have some person or three who have veto power. And now they want you to present to them. Well, in this presentation to them, it's almost like the hour-long speech you normally give and you would charge for that. And so these things sneak in and they're not trying to deceive you, but they're actually concessions along the way. They're taking up your time that would be you know, in your uh, attorney kind of world would be billable hours, those kinds of things. So it's those where if they're asking for those kind of customized practices throughout that you're thinking, okay, and then what could I ask for in return? It could be something about making sure you have the right executive in the room. It could be having a detailed selection criteria so that you know what criteria they're making their decisions on so that you can customize your moment with that team so that you can actually get this done. But even if it's a thing, even if it's information you're asking for, you've thought about that. And when they ask you for something, you're asking for something else in return so that each one feels like value is getting created. And it is because you're able to be more relevant to them as well. And you're not just giving it away and cheapening the interactions with you. Right. And essentially what you're doing is you're expanding the scope of the things that are valuable to either side. And so for you, obviously, it looks like, oh, money. That's what we want. We want more money. But you're realizing, no, it's not just that. If I'm going to do this and you're not willing to pay more money, maybe something that's valuable to me is the information, like you said. Maybe it's a referral. And thinking outside of the box is a great way to create more overall value in these deals. Yeah. And there are so many ways. It's fascinating once you start to get creative and just think, well, you know, what are the things that you care about and what are the things that they care about? And if you can find the magic ones are the ones that are easy for the person giving it away and high value. I mean, for me, for example, if they wanted to lower the price And I was able to add more value by giving away online program access to some of their employees who are remote. That for me, I've already created it and it is high value to give it away. But that's a lot easier to give away than putting me on a plane and having three days of downtime to have a one hour meeting with their executive. So I'd be way more apt to give away some licenses to an online training than I would to give my personal time away for an hour. But they might think, oh, but you know, the sales price of one license would be 
so off kilter. When you start, you know, looking at the pricing, they would assume it would be the other way around. But those are the ones where you can get really creative and feel like, not just feel like, but actually do create really high value for the other party because of the effort equation when you start really getting into it and getting creative. Right. And that's one of the keys to value creation, trading things of unequal value. So in your experience, how are you able to find things that they're willing to give away that doesn't cost them much, but is really valuable to you? Ah, yeah. Interesting. One will really relates to long-term relationships. So one thing I value is, for example, I have a customer, a couple of customers that do quite a lot of volume where about every other week I'm delivering an event to them. So imagine a big company that has training academies or corporate universities, and they want to offer StrengthsFinder training as professional development to all employees. And they just want to put it on rotation because they have a lot of new hires and they want to offer it all the time. So if I know inside of this deal that we may do 30 events in one year, that's going to add a lot of value for me because I can staff for that in advance. I can plan also, you know, it really helps my year, not just for revenue, but also for planning and um, being able to serve them better and customize along the way. So that's a huge one. And I'm willing to give up often many things if I have a statement of work that reflects a really large amount of either sometimes it's strengths consulting on retainer, sometimes it's doing leader coaching with their leaders so they can find the strengths of their team and use the talents of their own to influence their leadership style. Often it's the repeat of training classes. But those are the kind of things that when the deal is going to be deeper in their organization, then I can find all kinds of ways to be more creative. I love it. I love it. And let me ask you this. And I'm asking this because I already know the answer to this. Um, <laughs> How long did it take you to really get comfortable making these creative deals? Was it something that just came to you as soon as you start opened up your own shop or how long did it take? Uh, that's funny. So, um, you know, number one, I love saying yes to things. So if there's a new if there's a new client or a new thing to try out, then I do have a yes problem sometimes that I'm trying to reform from. So that's still a work in progress. I do think that lifelong naturally I am a decent influencer in that I've always been others oriented. I'm always thinking about what their interests are because that's how I understand people and make meaning of the world. So I think that helps me a lot. So in some ways, it's always been there for me. But negotiation, man, I'm not an expert and I am just collecting and experimenting as I go along. I'm experimenting with all sorts of things. Anytime I see a training company owner or professional speakers who do really well. And I see I'm in some groups where we share these kind of creative ideas. I have an Evernote and I'm collecting them and I'm thinking, all right, how could I get inspired from this? How would this one apply to me or to my customers? And so it's really, I feel like lifelong experiment. And I, I'm even doing it constantly from customer feedback or a future customer or a prospective customer. If someone reaches out to me and based on their feedback, they either jump on an idea or they kind of go dark or go quiet. I take note of what the situation was so that I can see, all right, that fell flat or that really landed. That makes people want to go now. And then I can start to customize programs that solve those kinds of problems for people. Right. And I love that answer because 
it really exemplifies the fact that this is a journey. So we're constantly getting better at this. And I think of it almost like, I guess we're, we're close to Rio still. Think about you being on a balancing beam. You're not ever going to be perfectly balanced, but you're going to continue to make constant adjustments as you start to wobble. And once you get better, there are going to be fewer wobbles, but there still will be wobbles. So I guess the advice to the listeners on this point would be to, after every time you have a conversation or an opportunity to persuade or negotiate, do a, a little post-mortem. Look at what you did that was good. Look at what you did that wasn't that great and think about how you could be better in the future. And um, be patient with yourself because it'll, it'll take some time to get to Lisa's level. Ha, that's funny. I would love to hear the experiments that people are going through. And I like your metaphor of the balance beam. And, you know, it, it reminds you of core strength because you're going to have core things that you're personally good at that are going to be different from someone else's natural tendencies. And you can lean on those. And then you start spotting the things. You know, Ooh, where did my toes hang off in a way they weren't supposed to? Or, or where did I let my arms flail around? Or what's catching me off guard? And then if you're watching for them, you can see, oh, that's the thing that gets me. Or that's the thing that doesn't seem to resonate with people. And then you can make adjustments. Right. And let me um, kind of lean on your strengths finder experience here. Let's see. Let's say if we have somebody who is very analytical and maybe they don't have very much EQ, emotional intelligence. So how would you say they should approach negotiation, but focusing on their strengths? Because like you, you're a person who you focus on the other people. You're a people-focused person. What about for those individuals who are just almost straight analytical and aren't a people person like you? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely possible as well. And they're going to bring something that I don't bring or can't bring. So I would do things like, you know, if it's a public company you're working with, dig into their financials, understand, read their letter to the shareholders and understand what the chairman is saying about where they're headed as a company and then start analyzing how you line up to that corporate strategy and how you could support it. The ability for someone really analytical to find legitimate stats or dig into the research and bring those insights. Those are things that someone like me, I value those and I like those, but they're more of my opener or my closer, but they're not, I don't have the super depth behind it. Uh, some of my clients who are really high in analytical, I've seen things like for salespeople who are super analytical, and that's not necessarily the most commonly thing seen. But when I do, I see people who have spreadsheets where they've considered all of their competitive advantages. They know all of their competitors and their competitors pricing, and they can make pivot tables out of it and understand all sorts of ways to slice the data that would give them insight into how to approach the deal and who might need to be involved and how they could come at this one to show their best. So I think it's knowing whatever that thing is and then letting yourself go nerdy in that way. You know, like if you're an analytical person and you have deep subject matter expertise, then be the knowledge partner, be the one who helps bring insights about the industry that your customer doesn't even know because you've been geeking out on it because you love that stuff. For me, that wouldn't be as much my space. But for that person, that may be how they win them over and how they win more customers. I love it. I think that's exactly what they should do. And you can tell when somebody's trying to operate outside of their element, too far outside of their element, and they kind of get away from their strengths. It feels inauthentic. And whenever you get that feeling like, hmm, somebody's being inauthentic, it comes off wrong in a negotiation because a lot of times 
we can sense the inauthenticity, but we don't know what it is that we're sensing in particular. So that might come off as being untruthful, even though you're just trying to be somebody you're not. And whenever you operate outside of yourself, it makes it a lot harder to bridge that trust gap. And that trust gap is the distance between any deal, any kind of agreement or any kind of relationship. So just be comfortable being who you are and learn how to maximize those unique strengths that you have. Yeah. You know, you're bringing back some memories for me. I remember um, one of my first jobs was in sales. And this was back in the late 90s when a lot of companies didn't have the internet yet. I know that sounds really crazy and it makes me sound really old. But uh, let's I was selling phone lines because everybody was really reliant on their phone lines. And this was long distance and local service and then also the internet. And I thought, this is so cool because that was early adopter stuff to be able to build an intranet and to be able to cast a future vision. And so I was really excited about what this internet thing was going to do for businesses. So conceptually, I thought, oh, I really like the product. This is going to be neat. And going into it, ooh, the company was not good. And it, in fact, went under relatively quickly. But I came in and realized it was really working against my values. The way they wanted me to sell it was with a very specific pitch that was already scripted. So I couldn't use my own words. I couldn't cast the vision of the future the way that I wanted to. They wanted me to go in, cold call X number of doors with this exact script. So I couldn't read my audience and adjust. And then as I got into it further, I realized the company was terrible. They were just trying to acquire business and they weren't coming through on the service on the other side of the deal. And so I started walking into people's businesses and they were running me out saying, oh, you work for them and get out of here. And they, you know, they'd cuss at me and say horrible things just because I was associated with them. So once I realized that, at first I thought it was a fluke and I would go to the mall and go to the Franklin Covey store in between the day to refuel with positive thoughts. I would go look at their Franklin Covey planner <laughs> and Zig Ziglar tapes that I had in the car to refuel. But then I realized, oh, this isn't going away. This is a values misalignment or whatever you might call it. I couldn't sell that product because I didn't believe that it would get serviced on the other side. So then it just wrecked my ability to talk about it or do it. And I, and I had to quit. So I think that's another important one where you're talking about aligning with you. And that also gets to do you match the company culture? Do you believe in what you're sharing with the world? Because I don't feel like today in owning this lead through strengths business, I don't go out there and go, I'm selling something to people. I feel like I'm able to change the world because I can help people feel more productive at work and get more energy at work. It doesn't feel like I'm selling something. So if it feels any way to you other than, boy, this is a really awesome gift that I can share with the world, then you might be in the wrong spot. Because if you're negotiating for something you don't believe in, you're never going to show up at your best in that conversation. Wow. That is so deep. And it's, it's really funny <laughs> because when you think about it, if you think about anything that you're really passionate about or something that you like, like for me, my favorite kind of ice cream, since I'm a rebel, is vanilla with sprinkles. And, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't get away from it. I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm a really adventurous eater, I promise, like in all other aspects, but with, with ice cream, vanilla and sprinkles. But if I'm telling people, if I am evangelizing about vanilla and sprinkles, I don't feel like I am selling. It doesn't feel inauthentic. This is just what I do. But if we start talking about 
something else, you know, I just, my heart wouldn't be in it. Yeah. If somebody said, okay, Kwame, you are Rocky Road salesman and you need to use these words to describe it. And they are words you don't believe in or that you wouldn't ordinarily say, you can't show up as the best you. It's impossible. Exactly. I would be a fraud. You would be a chocolatey, nutty fraud. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man, that's so funny. So I guess the, the moral of this story is everybody needs to find their vanilla and sprinkles and operate from that position. I love that. Just, I'm totally going to use that. What are your vanilla and sprinkles? <laughs> that's so funny. All right. Well, let's wrap it up with this, because one of the other things that we talked about was... Uh, the ability to say no. And earlier in the podcast, I think, I don't remember what episode, one of the first five or six episodes, I, I talked about how to say no. And I, I really liked what you were talking about, your experience in saying no and your experience in saying yes when you should have said no and how you've gotten progressively better at saying no. Yeah, getting there. I think the first is the realization. So there's this mindset part that is, first, your personal brand is what you've been doing. So if you're getting known for the stuff that you don't like to do, you know, people are going to ask the person that they last interacted with who was good at that. So are you building a personal brand around activities you don't even like and you keep getting asked to do things in that area? That's a big red flag. Got to say no to those. And you want to say yes to only the things that build you into the work you want to be doing in your life. And then the other is this realization in the mindset camp, which is, you know, if you say yes too much, your performance is going to go downhill. So you're you're getting these requests because you're a great performer and it feels good to say yes to people that you care about or respect. But hey, if you say yes too much and your calendar gets too overbooked and it starts spreading you thin or making you feel diluted and you're losing sleep or you're skipping workouts or you're not giving time to your family, these things that make you feel filled up, you're eventually going to see poor performance creep in and it's all in the name of what? Trying to satisfy somebody or say yes again. So it's kind of those couple of things, I think, as the first, getting your head right about what you're saying yes to. And then the others just coming up with strategies. So here's what I've been doing, because I'm still in reform mode and trying to get better at this. And my calendar, by the way, is reflecting yeses that I made a year ago. So I think that's another huge lesson is these yeses last a long time. Is That's a good point. Yeah. And I think being able to say it is coming up with a way that for you feels good. So I call one of them a slow no. And it's just something that I've been doing to give myself time to consider a request and craft an answer. So I thank people for thinking of me for the opportunity. And then I tell them, you know, literally, thanks for thinking of me on this and be specific about it. Let me look at my calendar, my commitments for November or for the next year or for whatever it is. And I'll get back to you by and be really specific. I'll get back to you by Friday. I'll get back to you by tomorrow. And it gives you the opportunity to not out of your exuberance or your commitment to them or whatever that thing is that makes you say yes. It, if you pre-planned it and you feel comfortable, even if it's in person, you can remind yourself, all right, do the slow no, because you may want to say yes to this. You may want to say no, but give yourself a second and have those words ready so that it feels comfortable to not accept in the moment. That's a huge one. I think that's a really great way to handle it. And giving yourself time is powerful 
because oftentimes we feel kind of cornered and we want the person that's right in front of us to feel good about what we say and what we do. And we think that the best way to make them feel good in the moment is yes, not really having that long-term mentality, thinking about how our performance might lack and then it would make them feel bad or hurt the relationship in the future and hurt yourself because it's something you don't really want to do. But um, for a lot of my listeners, I've realized that a lot of them are actually in the workplace. So they're in the corporate environment. So sometimes they are receiving asks from people in positions of authority. So from your experience, how would you suggest that they say no to a manager or their boss? How can they have right. a conversation? Oh, I'm with you guys that are experiencing that because, oh, uh, that, and that one's the toughest. So I have a, an example from, I had an executive boss who I loved and respected and had so many good ideas and he would bring good ideas. And I, over time concluded that the only answer that was good for him was yes. And was, all right, you know, here's how we're going to get that thing done. And that is how I like to approach things. It's like, here's how we can get to yes. But then what I was doing to myself was over time, I let it creep in, creep in, creep in. I thought that all my yeses were going to be intervals of work that, okay, this is going to get really busy and I can just kind of brute force gut it out for this month and then it'll go back to a little more sanity. Well, that's not how it turned out. He is full of great ideas. He's amazing. And so he brought more and more and more. And finally, I had to come to him and do this thing where I, I said, I'm waving my white surrender flag. I have to get more resources to be able to keep committing to these new projects. And when we finally had a conversation about it, he said, oh, I just thought you were a superstar. I never would have stopped giving this stuff over because every time I give you more work, you absorbed it and just, you know, you pulled it off meeting deadlines and everything else. And so here I am thinking, well, he must realize that this is me working until midnight and I've given up my drum lessons and I uh, ha I am doing really cruddy or not doing workouts. And I started getting really burnt out. And then eventually I started even resenting the lack of acknowledgement about how much work this was taking. But how could he ever acknowledge? It wasn't like an outward deep resentment, but it was kind of like, man, this is hardcore. And when it, I don't know, I would think things like maybe I'm not cut out for this environment. But that isn't at all what's going on. Not, people can't read your mind. They don't know. And if you're not a whiner, which I'm not, so I wasn't reporting out, oh, do you know that every night now I've been working until 1 a.m. for four weeks straight? No, I didn't say that. I just got it done. And I was thinking he must know, but he didn't. And so I think a big one in the workplace is figuring out your own version of the slow no, really, which is to say... Um, more often, it's focused on scope and priorities where you're able to say, oh, wow, you know, that sounds like an awesome idea. That sounds like a great project. I'd love to get involved with it. Let's talk about scope and priorities so we know what we can cut or postpone to make room for it. And find those phrases like that that open the conversation so you can say, all right, look, we've got this is going to take 30 man hours a week. And with the resources on the team, we can do this. Let's talk about what we reorganize or even determine maybe sometimes it's not the important priority once you look at everything that's on the table. So I think it's getting the slow no kind of phrase around scope and priority that works. I really like that because the exploration of scope and priority forces the other party to go through some reality testing. Because like you said, a lot of times we have an assumption that they understand what we're going through and how long it's going to take. But 
sometimes our superiors are a little bit removed from the front lines and they don't remember how difficult it is to get yeah. some stuff done. So I, I really like that idea to uh, walk through the scope and how long it's going to take and what it's going to require. And then they might come to that conclusion themselves like, oh, this really can't be done. Right. And that keeps you really focused on the business outcomes because it's easy when you first hear one of these requests. You might even think that the project is awesome. But what I hear people doing all the time is they'll go, oh, oh, I don't have time for that. Or they freak out and they're thinking about the seven steps later that they're going to be doing and they get really negative about accepting projects. So give yourself the freedom to explore the excitement of the idea so they know that you're not squashing everything and you're not negative Nelly in the workplace. And then the other thing that comes up is that people automatically feel like, well, I'm so busy. Well, I haven't seen my kids enough. Well, I feel really stressed out. And those things may all be valid and your boss may care about you a lot and actually care about those things. But really, the perspective you need to filter through is the business. You know, I want to bring my best performance to the business. So let's make sure we have the workload balanced out in a way that it brings us attention to the biggest priorities. So let's talk through what the priorities are and let's talk through what the workday looks like. And so it's the it's the filter. And I think scope and priority works for both parties where you can look at, all right, what's getting done, what's most important, and it doesn't get into the well, I feel really stressed out and that that's valid, but that's not really something that I've found is effective to lead with. Wow, that's deep. And another thing too, I just <laughs> realized this could be applied for entrepreneurs as well. So when we think about it as entrepreneurs, we often think, hey, we're free, you know, we're the lone ranger. Not really. We have bosses and they're called clients. And uh, a lot of times they ask us to do things that are unrealistic too. So going through that same slow no process and walking the clients through what it really would entail to get that work done is going to have the same kind of benefit for entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, I think it's huge, both for entrepreneurs and for somebody who's in a regular employee kind of scenario in the workplace is know who you're becoming. What do you want to get known for in the next year or two? And then this work when it comes to you, is it aligned with that? And as an entrepreneur, one thing I see all the time is that, you know, we have a lot of ideas and we might change course in three years, five years from now, you might be doing something totally different from where your business started. I know I am. I started as a business to consumer career coaching kind of thing. And that's business to business and it's training and speaking. It's it's different. And so if you are not consistently keeping yourself in check with these slow no's or staying in touch relationship wise with people and keeping meaningful relationships going, they don't know what to know you for. And so they come back to you and they ask you for work on a project that reflects your focus five or seven years ago, because that's how they know you. And you're you're thinking, oh, gosh, I don't want to disappoint this person. I really respect them and like them. But, well, they didn't get like they, they don't know the new program here. So I think that's a big one as well as people. You might be memorable from work you've delivered long, long ago. And people don't realize that unless you say yeses that align with who you want to become and what you want to be known for in the future. Wow. I love that. That is so good. And it's funny because I'm thinking about my inbox and right now and some of the clients that I have, I'm going to need to hit some folks with a slow no coming mm -hmm. up soon. So this, this is really helpful for me. Well, I know your time is coming up, so I wanted to ask you one last question. And that is, uh, what do you think is something that our listeners could do today to become a better negotiator? 
I think they could come up with a yes criteria, a set of yes criteria. I have three of them. I think that's a good number. Start to apply them and tweak them over time and come up with the big things in life that they want to say yes to so they can filter all of their opportunities in front of them through that. That's going to work for an employee. That's going to work for an entrepreneur. And these are things down. I'll just give an example of one of mine. I call it duty free. And I've realized that when I really am honest with myself, I like to be a spark. I want to come into an organization. I want to do that speech or that workshop. And then I want to equip them to take it from there and implement on their own. So I like to provide the tools for them to be able to do it. I used to say yes to deliverables work that gave me a lot of duties that would last for a year or more. And so I play on words at the airport duty-free shop, but I'm calling it duty-free. And so I filter opportunities from that. Is it going to be a project? Those feel personally for me like they hang over my head for a long time. Some people are great at those and love those. For me, I don't. And so it tells me whether to say yes or no to an opportunity because I've thought of these. And so I have three of these criteria and I every big opportunity I filter through them. So that one thing I would do is start to make your list, come up with three things that you could filter all. So this is big picture stuff, you know, filter all things through. Another for me is lifestyle. Does it support the lifestyle I say I want to live? So for me, that's doing a lot of virtual events and not only living on the road and being on airplanes. And then fun is the third one. Will I actually enjoy the work and the client? So I keep them very simple. They're big picture. And they give me a filter to think through every opportunity. And what that helps me with is for the client that I love or the person that I adore working with, if the work is not a good fit, it keeps me in check so that I've actually considered it before I say yes and commit. Wow. So I have officially adopted all three of those <laughs> into my own personal rubric. I love it. I, I think that is absolutely brilliant because a lot of times we just think about when we don't really have a, a formalized criteria for whether or not we're going to say yes. And I think this really makes our decision-making process a lot easier when we put things through this test with a little bit of rigor and it makes that process easier for us to say yes or say no. I really, 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 really like that. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.